Future Hacker Life Path Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taidi, and today we are talking to Juliana Prozerpio. Juliana is the co-founder and chief design officer of Echoes, a global innovation lab. And its business units, Echoes School of Design Thinking, a school that puts innovation in practice, and Echoes Innovation Projects. Over the last 10 years, Juliana has worked to develop an innovation ecosystem in APEC and Latin America to foster the power of design for desirable futures. Juliana was responsible for creating the first Google News Initiative Design Accelerator in 2019 in the Asia Pacific, and later, designed and implemented the GNI Startup Labs in Brazil and India. She also led innovation projects with WorkSafe in Australia, helping them design their future vision for 2048, and is currently leading a design accelerator for the House and Property Department, NSW Government. She's a columnist at the MIT Sloan Management Review and Epoca Negocios, a speaker, a content producer in her field of design and innovation, writing ebooks such as The Power of Design, and a couple of other. I think you have like three or four ebooks, right, Juliana? And I forgot to mention Juliana is Brazilian, uh, as I am. So it's really great to have you with us today. How are you doing? Hi, Maria. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing well. Olá, os brasileiros. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Juliana, as uh, people already figured out, you have this amazing global experience, right? So my first question to you is, which would be the main differences between regions when it comes to drawing desirable futures and the roadmap to get there? Look, I work mostly in, in two uh, regions, right? In APAC and in Latin America, more in Brazil. I think that the main difference is about the time that we think and design desirable futures for these two regions. Usually in Brazil, the kind of innovation that we work with, the kind of projects that we work with, they are usually a little bit um, shorter period. So it's usually we think about futures for the next five, um, maybe sometimes even two, sometimes eight years, max of 10 years. Here, working with APEC, we sometimes uh, work longer periods of time in terms of like 2048, like I was, like we, you were mentioning before with WorkSafe. So there is a bigger appetite to design future that are more far-fetched. And I think the reason for that is because here in Australia specifically, there is more stability in many other things. So you feel more ready that you can design futures and you think about futures that are a bit longer than five to 10 years. In Brazil, there is a lot of instability. There is a lot of ambiguity in the air. And for innovators and designers and any kind of business leaders to navigate, there is a lot of uncertainty. So it's harder for you to think about the future in so many years in advance. So I think that this is one of, of the things. The other difference is that here in Australia, and this is compared to Brazil, Australia is a big country in, in, let's say, in land, but it's a small country when it comes to the number of people who live here. And in Brazil is big in land and big in people, and it's a, a very big economy. Australia is also a big economy, of course. But what I'm trying to say is that in Australia, if you are a business or a startup, 
you need to think globally because if you only think about your own country and your own stakeholders, it might not be enough. So you need to think globally to expand. And in Brazil, it's the other way around because we are so big. We have such a big economy. You can grow infinitely there. And then it's, it's sometimes you get stuck in your own country for good and for bad, right? It's, I'm not saying that this is uh, something that is a positive or negative thing. It's just that it's absolutely different in this way. It means that we are more constrained sometimes in Brazil to the context of Brazil, of what's going on out there. As we know, even in Brazil, we don't connect as much to Latin America as we could or as we should. So we are very self-centered sometimes in terms of designing futures, of innovations and, and things like that. I think these are two big uh, differences that I see. And maybe another thing would be that in Brazil, sometimes our, we are as a nation, we are very known to be creative. But when we talk about businesses and corporations, it's a very traditional, let's say, context. And in Australia, it's also traditional. But I think because there is a push for being in APEC, you are connected, you are in the middle of Asia Pacific. So you know more like firsthand what's going on in the other countries. So sometimes you might be a little bit pushing. Brazil, we're very influenced by, by the U.S., of course. But sometimes we just say, no, this is our market, so we can kind of accommodate to what we have here. So it changes uh, a little bit your, the way how you, you design futures, how you see innovation, and what you see it's possible. Oh, great points. And it actually, they, they do make sense to me. And what about common trends? What, what, what could you say about, you know, do we have anything in common? You mean about thinking about futures? Yes, yes, exactly. Look, I think we have more things in common than not. I think we are a global, I think acting as a global community and thinking globally is something that's not going back. And actually with the pandemic, this increased a lot. So we are both in, in, in all of the regions, we're all living the challenge of the great resignation, the way how we work changed a lot. The way how we experience work uh, is changing a lot and it's going to continue to change. We are seeing and every day people who are going to be working more and more remotely or in hybrid models, people who don't want to work in the traditional way that it was like from nine to five, going to the office and this kind of things. We are seeing a lot of, uh, there was a big thing in the pandemic that made new technologies and kind of things such as the surveillance features of government being more accepted. So more and more before maybe the pandemic, as citizens, maybe we wouldn't accept the surveillance that many countries are putting upon us. Uh, but because of the pandemic, there is a trade-off, right? You give away your privacy so that you can walk free. So you put in your app, you go there and you check in every place that you are to show that you are, and that's okay because it gives you freedom to come and go. But maybe if you said this in 2018, saying that we'll be tracking every citizen, knowing where they are, this would be absolutely outrageous. We wouldn't accept it because the context changed. Now we accept all of those things. And before even, if you, if you compare to, to China, right? So they were doing this before everyone and it was, oh, this is, so crazy how this, the, usually the Western world would be very judgmental of those things. But now with the pandemic, the West world is doing this, are doing the same things. Of course, there are differences, but this is more accepted. 
And this is something that we need to think about and to reflect upon, of course. But these are common common trends uh, for sure. Thanks to COVID, for sure, right? It's uh, the same questions, the same challenges. Every everybody's still asking ourselves, like themselves, what to do next, right? Yeah. So let, let's change the topic a bit. Let's talk about one of your specialties, right? Design. I, I did interview people that experts from Israel and, and a couple of other countries in, in design thinking and strategy and innovation. So I do like asking first, what's your definition of, of design? Because, you know, a couple of years ago, probably when I was still a student, if you talked about design, it would be something completely different and, and a little more specific than the broad term that we're using today applied to business and, and the way we do things. I think that the concept is, is a little more uh, broad than it was before, maybe. You did write this article for MIT Review in which you state, and I found that super interesting, that the issue behind Netflix, the Social Dilemma documentary, is a matter of design. So besides having a better understanding of your definition of design, how the bad design or the lack of it can have a negative impact for the business? That's a, that's a great question, full of many subtleties. So I'll start with uh, what is design, I think. Look, in, in, my, in my own understanding, design is an innate human condition. And the reason why I'm saying that is because as humans, we can and we do intentionally transform, change, and create things. And this is design. So if you think about all the other types of species, they also do create things. Birds create nests, but it's not something that they do intentionally. They are doing this by instinct. The only kind of species that do things and change and create and alter their surroundings and their own experience and their own context are human beings. And the best definition that I see uh, of design is very broad. And that's why design became more and more powerful. And the definition is not mine, is from Herbert Simon that says the design is about changing existing conditions into preferred ones. And for me, this is the best one. So design is about an action and it's a lot, it is really connected to intent. And it's about changing existing conditions to preferred ones. And this is the connection between and the link to your question that you were just saying about the issue behind Netflix uh, social dilemma documentary is a matter of design that you were mentioning before. So the social dilemma uh, on Netflix, for those who don't know, talks about all the privacy issues, all the problems that we created in, in our community about being addicted to your image, about thinking differently, or about being influenced to do or to buy or to act about something because of social media or the infinite scroll, right? So they talk a lot about creating, this was a matter of design, for example, someone designed this infinite scroll on social media that it never ends. It means that you can spend hours there. Should have we designed something like this? And of course, the, these challenges are a matter of design. And, and why are we saying that? And why do I say that? Is because every decision Every interface, every action that is propelled by 
a software and whatever, a solution, a, an object was something that was designed for someone. Someone designed this to someone else use it, right? So if it is creating a negative impact, if it's making you addicted to your app, if it's making you feel bad, if it's making you want to look in a different way, that it's impossible for you to look like that. This was designed maybe unintentionally. Maybe it's not something that it was their aim. I'm not saying that the design is uh, mean, but it was designed this way. So how bad design, and then the last uh, bit of this, uh, of this amazing question, how bad design and the lack of design can have a negative impact Bad design can have a negative impact because it leaves a lot of doors for unintended consequences. So this is usually bad design and it's superficial. It doesn't test all of the alternatives. It doesn't test the impact on people and on behavior and how this is going to be creating a longer impact. So what is the theory of change that this is going to be creating? For business more specifically, it can create bad design because maybe... It doesn't engage with your customers, audience, or clients in the best way. It can create by design because it doesn't deliver a good value proposition. It can create bad design because it's a horrible experience or user experience, or it has a bad communication. So there are many layers of design. Design can have a direct impact on business from the communication piece to the product per se, to the interaction, to the service, and to the business model. Impacts the business model and the ecosystem. So all of there are all of these different layers of design that your business will be impacted and it can create a very bad, let's say, outcome if you don't design it well. That made a lot of sense, Juliana. Thank you so much for that. So you also use design in the context of leadership, right? And there's actually... This new role that has been created, I don't know how, how new, which is the chief design officer. So what's this role about? How, how common is it nowadays? And, you know, from anyone that is listening that is interested, how to prepare for that? That's um, so, so look, the chief design officer is a quite a new role. I mean, it actually exists for a while, but it's not very common yet. It is becoming more and more common We also have the VP of design. So there are other different kind of vernaculars for it. There are VPs of design. And basically, it's an executive position that sits usually side by side with the other executives in the organization. It can sit side by side with the CEO. And it's a collaboration of executive decisions in an organization. And what is this role? This role, usually it determines the future vision and the strategy of the organization. What is the desirable future for this organization, right? And it's not only about predicting futures for the organization or for the startup, but actually it's more about speculating alternative scenarios and trying to nudge and to push a desirable one. It also helps to set up What is the, the ethics and what are the, how are we going to be designing our product? And basically everything that is connected to articulating the value of design inside the organization and outside the organization. So it touches usually strategic points. And of course, it helps to set up all of the internal design practice 
it's sometimes the internal design practice means technology as well. So it helps you set up the the part where the function of your business, how the business works, sometimes how your product works, and these kind of things. I'm just wondering, like for at least here in Brazil, uh, I'm not, I, I don't know how common it is to have this role here, especially here. You still see a lot of chief transformation officers or chief innovation officers. How would you compare this role to a transformation officer, for example? Look, I think a, a design officer, a chief design officer compared to a transformation officer is, is design-led. So sometimes a transformation officer is not necessarily design-led. And the, the design officer has a similar, let's say, role, but it means that it has this specific knowledge about design. And I think there is more, for sure, I think there will be a lot of the values of design embedded in the practice of the chief design officer. That is about being human-centered. That is also being about and creating strategies that are very intentional in the way that is intentional, that it's not only following trends, but it's more about creating desirable, let's say, visions and ways and follows how it goes. It, there is also this big thing going on in design that is about structuring design practices and teams. So there's a lot of the design ops embedded in, into that there is some other, I think, differences because the, the transformation or the transition, there's a lot of, a lot of change management embedded in this, this other position. And in design, change management is something that you work to create the t transition, but it's not necessarily the approach or the tool that you use all the time. So it's kind of part of in the mix, part of the mix, but it's not your, your final goal, right? It's a little bit different in this way. I think they can work together, to be honest. Maybe in some organizations, it would be amazing to have these two working together. It could be very fruitful. But I think it's a bit different because it's a specialty um, and it's, it has these values behind it. Yes, yes. It makes a lot of sense. And usually, what are the main challenges that you see for organizations to incorporate that role? You do mention another MIT article of yours that this this term of the organization have a immune system against innovation, which I absolutely love. And you actually mentioned that it's like the same behavior pattern everywhere, no matter the country. So which are those patterns? That's uh, that's very interesting. I have been seeing this happening in different organizations in Brazil, in Australia, in Singapore, in Taiwan. I think this immune system, it's a way that we react as, um, as a group, usually in organizations, to try to avoid innovation to happen. And I think the, the patterns are there is a fear of being wrong and a fear or, or feeling that you don't know what you're doing. So there is a fear or feeling shamed. So there is a fear of shame of kind of not knowing exactly what you're doing. That is one of the first things that make you block innovation in an organization. And usually when you are trying to create innovation, you create sometimes a little bit of chaos inside an organization. So you don't know exactly what is going to be happening next because everything is new. So the fear of shame of not knowing what you're doing makes people freeze and makes people say, no, I don't want to do that. The other one is about the fear of being responsible and accountable. So if you're part of this initiative that is um, an innovation initiative or something like that, 
if it works and if you are successful, it means that you're going to have extra work. So then you're going to be held accountable. And then you're going to have to do what you were doing your business as usual. And then you're going to have to do these other things. So I have been seeing these over and over again. Then the third one is there is this disconnection with the strategy. And sometimes innovation initiatives are disconnected to the core business. And then why am I going to be doing that? You know, I'm not, I don't want to be doing that. It's just a fluffy thing. It's not what I want to participate. And then I think lastly, there is a lot of the, the thinking still behind that if you are a successful organization or team and you are performing, you shouldn't be changing anything on it. And then there is this, let's say, continue and you want to continuate what you were doing because you are winning in a way. And then you don't want to change anything that is out there. So it's, if you, if you remember our <laughs> tragic day where we lost in, in, the, in, in the World Cup, in the soccer, in the football World Cup, against Germany, 7-1. to Brazil as a team didn't invest in any kind of innovation for training the team, for mindset. And if you, if you looked at the team, it was like the, for, from Germany, the one seven against one. They invested in new technologies. They invested in mindfulness for the players. They invested in a lot of things. So they were constantly innovating. And we, we were kind of stopped in our recipe for success, having amazing players and having amazing talent. And it didn't work, right? So that's, I think these are the four, the four patterns uh, in a way that I would see. The number of times that I heard in my life, in my previous companies, like the phrase, we've been doing this way for the last 20 years, so we don't need to change. I, I can't tell you how many times I heard that. So yes, I, I do believe that's a really strong a strong reason for people to be afraid. I, I still want to be to be exploring this this topic with you, but we're getting out of time, so I'm going to end this first episode. But you know, stay tuned, everybody. We're continuing this conversation on the second episode with Juliana. Stay tuned. Future Hacker Life Path Future.